Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest of Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, today we've got a very, very special guest with us. Uh, looking forward to talking a lot of uh, freshwater fish, seafood, all the things that live in and around the water, uh, as well as a, a new cookbook that uh, I think everyone here will find very interesting. Uh, but first, let me give uh, some quick updates on myself. So by the time you're hearing this, I will have returned, hopefully, uh, hopefully I don't jinx myself triumphantly from Wyoming. We'll see. I'll probably jinx myself. But uh, headed up there or returning from there by the time you're listening uh, after elk and antelope, uh, looking at heading out with Colin uh, this coming weekend to do some deer hunting in eastern Colorado out on the plains. Uh, read some interesting facts about the plains elk herds are on the rise in colorado so we'll see if if i get any uh happen chance stumbles upon those uh those herds but if not no big deal either way uh looking forward to that adventure a little concern as the temperatures continue to drop here in colorado and hunting season's in full swing and for someone who spent the last five years down in the islands it's uh it's causing me to buy some extra coats and try to prepare myself for winter uh, outside of that, uh, make sure you follow another two podcasts, Antler and Finn and uh, Adventures for Food. So Antler and Finn's airing separately uh, on its own station and is like a audio cookbook, kind of walking you through some of our favorite recipes here, Harvest in Nature. And then uh, Adventures for Food features on this same episode uh, or same platform, uh, same channel here. You'll hear those biweekly, sort of just Adventures for Food, uh, stories from out in the field, from you, from whoever else. So if you're interested in that, let us know. Shoot us an email at what's cooking at harvestinature.com, and we're always happy to have you on. Uh, the other thing I want to uh, introduce you to on the podcast with us today is our our various n- very new member of Harvesting Nature, and that's uh, Casey. Casey's taken over the role as our business manager. So, Casey, I'll give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and and let the uh, the digital world know who they're listening to. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited about the the new position here with Harvesting Nature. Uh, like you said, uh, Casey Nordeen, I uh, grew up in the Black Hills of South Dakota, spent m- most of my life here, did have a stint in the Twin Cities area, um, been hunting, fishing most of my life, kind of post-college really uh, reinvested time and effort into what that looked like in my life, um, diving more into the food aspect of it, getting excited about recipes and things like that, so um following people like Hank for a long time now. Um, and, uh, let's see as far as like what I've been up to leading up to now and what's coming up. You mentioned doing some elk hunting. I, uh, was fortunate to get my first bull with my brother in Montana. Oh, that was about September 12th. So I shouldn't say about September 12th. We both, uh, doubled out on bulls in Montana. And then I have another, B tag in Montana and you mentioned grassland herd so 
uh, bee tags in Montana, for anyone that doesn't know, is uh, private land or non-forest service land. So looking in BLM chunks, state-owned chunks, things like that, that's a cow tag. So be heading back out for that here in just a few weeks. Nice. Well, uh, yeah, we're certainly happy to have you and, and uh, really excited. We've been having a lot of good conversations and excited to grow uh, the business world here at Harvest in Nature. So uh, also excited to chat with you today on the podcast. But let me uh, introduce you to our guest. So uh, our, our guest today, he's been on the podcast before. And if you recall back in season two, episode 204, we chatted with Hank Shaw, uh, really dove into a, a lot of his introductions and his experiences and in the kitchen and out of the kitchen and the wild food world and all this. And well, we asked Hank to come back on the show, uh, because if you haven't known, noticed, uh, he released a new cookbook, uh, hook line and supper. So we wanted to get him back on the show and get an update on some adventures and, uh, really see what's going on in the new book and hopefully inspire you all to go out and purchase it yourself. So Hank, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, it's been a quite a wild ride on book tour this year. Yeah, I've, I've been following you on social media. You've been bouncing around quite a bit. Yeah, I've been. I've kind of hit the all four corners of the cross, you know. Um, but interestingly, this has been, as, as everybody listening here can understand, this has been something of a whiplash year in terms of, you know, last year everything was like, meh, you know, and this year everyone's, yay, we're free, and then, <laughs> oh, we're not, and yay, we're free, and then, oh, we're not, so... I've had a lot of fits and starts on the tour, so it's left. It, I'm leaving it unfinished this year, and um, there's probably about a somewhere between six and six and twelve events that I'm going to try to pick up uh, in spring when people nice. are fishing again. Yeah, and I, I imagine you know the the complexities too. With everything's different in each location as far as like restrictions or protocols, and I could imagine too that's it's. Uh, aggravating to have to deal with as well. It's not so much aggravating as you know, because if you want me to wear a mask, mm-hmm. I'll wear a mask. If you don't want to mar- me to wear a mask, I won't wear. It. I mean, it's, I don't care either way. But it's it's actually been the staffing issues at the restaurants and the events that I've been wanting to do. Like we had to cancel Seattle because Filson did not have the staff to be able to do an, a, a book signing event at their store in Seattle, wow. which which is yeah. kind of a bummer. Uh, but uh, you know, on the flip side, I was in Denver at um, the mm-hmm. fifth string and we sold it out. So it's like the things that have happened have been good. And then, you know, the things that haven't happened, maybe we'll pick it up then yeah. next year. It has been a wild year for sure. But I think uh, last I saw you was this summer up at the BHA rendezvous. Uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. That was in, was it right yep. beginning of yeah, June? Yeah. Right before we moved actually. So uh, the week before. But yeah, um, how how was that event for you? It wasn't bad. Um, I got a chance to judge the uh, the wild mm-hmm. game cook off, and uh, that's you, always interesting. You judged me you different. <laughs> I know because <laughs> you have different different ideas of the uh, of you know what that challenge is all about, and and uh, and it's funny. Like I, the other judges were like. I mean, they're like, what do you, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I mean, I'll just put my two cents in. And, and my two cents in was that, you know, the best actual food is going to win, like not necessarily the weirdest. Uh, and then the other piece was if there's a tie, like if there's a couple of states that, that had good food, then, then you start to get into like, well, what represented mm-hmm. the state the best? So it was yeah, fun. it was that was my first time doing that. Uh, actually, really going to the rendezvous in general, and I, I told uh, several of the folks with BHA, and then you know I was with the Florida chapter. I was like, I'm all in. Like, I want to do everything. I'm I'm flying to Montana from Key West, like taking the family. This is a big thing. So let's just like, let's do everything we can. So, uh, but it was fun. I mean, you guys were, I think you guys were, we were third, yeah, were you? We, we took Second third. or third, yeah. Like, I remember the food being Thanks. really good and and interesting. That was the thing. Like, you guys, I think there was a couple of technical issues, but, I mean, that food was interesting. It was very Florida, too. The the Florida betony yeah. was a nice touch. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think we overcooked the alligator bit. That was probably one of the big technical yes. hang-ups. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, if it's like, eh, it was one of the hang-ups. But I think overall our our entire spread was pretty good. So I'm, I'm 
I have to say, I was genuinely surprised at Minnesota yeah. one. It's, I mean, it, because you know, you don't think about Minnesota as being like a culinary capital mm-hmm. of the world, but they represented their state and they were technically oh, yeah. flawless. So it's like, hmm, yeah, all right, well, I think they did we like what the wild rice <laughs> and the the duck and had some great stories. I heard. I, I was, yeah, I'm, you know, no one, no one likes to lose, but if if you're gonna be out competed, like you want to look at that person and be like, oh yeah, you know what they did good for them so exactly exactly i don't mind losing if, it, if it's to, if it's yeah, fair and square absolutely. you know so um but no it was fun i, I think i'll go back next year uh I, i'm still trying to find my footing my culinary footing in colorado but uh I, I think it'll happen over the next year so we'll we'll see um i would highly recommend you look up people like erica mm-hmm. markinek um she's wild food girl there are there's a whole cadre of of I mean, actually, a lot of them are in Colorado, but uh, there's a whole cadre of wild food people who are based in the Mountain West, and start looking them up, because they have a lot of good things to offer in terms of, they're doing good things with wild foods that that not everybody's doing, and and, um, the Rockies are kind of a special place in terms of wild foods. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm already learning a lot. Like, I got out here, and I joined some of the foraging groups, and like the mycological groups, and just like... Holy smokes, it's a whole nother world for me. So, but uh, it, it, it's fun just seeing and learning so far, you know, through the computer and then getting out when I can. But uh, uh, I'm excited. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll start looking up those folks for sure. Uh, so, what outside of uh, the book tour, have you had any opportunity to go on any, uh, any adventures, hunting, fishing, foraging, any trips at all? Uh, I mean, I haven't, yeah, you know, I did do a couple of actual trip trips, um, but nothing, in a book tour year, everything is connected Mm -hmm. to an event. So that doesn't mean I get to, I don't get to do anything, but I actually had some really interesting fishing trips this year. Um, I had a, I finally got myself um, some Mm -hmm. ocean whitefish in Southern California, which are, they're kind of a tile fish. And so that's a fish that I've been chasing for quite some time. And then... We murdered the scamp in the Gulf of Mexico, which I'm sure yes. you can appreciate. Yeah, um, yeah, we had a really good scamp trip off of Dauphin Island in Alabama, and it's been it was a really good fishing year. I mean, I think um, it's, I've had the opportunity to to catch a lot of uh, fish to to add to my ever growing list of species that I have uh, caught, cooked, and eaten. Nice, that's awesome. Uh, which which one stood out as your favorite? You think? It's hard to beat yellowtail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you've ever been to a sushi restaurant, it's uh, hamachi. And I, I caught an almaco jack down in uh, in the Gulf. And almaco jacks are, in my opinion, are kind of the second cousin to a yellowtail. Um, I like them better than amberjacks. They have a, a bit more of a cleaner taste really? to them. Um, they do, and they're okay. smaller. Um, you know, you're not gonna an almaco is never gonna be like a reef donkey, and you know, I just, I don't know. It's just cool to just run through fish and see what people are doing with them and, and, you know, just have fun with it. Yeah. And it's something that's, that's, uh, what's the old saying? A, a good day f- or a bad day fishing is better than a good day in the office or however it goes. I don't know. Yeah. That's <laughs> a great saying if fishing's not your job. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that is true. Uh, once you connect the piece of, of needing the fish, especially to cook and write, and it does a, a trip out on the boat ends up to just be a, a pleasure cruise. Well, I've also commercial fish. Yep. So I've had days where I've made $2,000 and I've had days where I've made seven. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And gas isn't cheap. <laughs> so, um, well, so uh, kind of as I alluded to in the initial beginnings, like we, we want to hear, uh, we want to discuss a lot about your book today. And I think there's, uh, Casey and I put our heads together and come up with, with quite, the, quite the points, I think. Um, but for everybody that doesn't know, you, there, I was looking today, there's several actual points to buy uh, Hank's new book. But I think probably the most beneficial to you is to get it off, the, off your page. Uh, am I correct in saying that? I mean, to be honest, get it wherever you want to get it. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, I mean, Am- Amazon will be the quickest. Mm-hmm. 
Um, if you want a signed copy of any of my books, then you do have to go through my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardner Cook. Um, I have a whole sort of books bookshop um, mm-hmm. on the website. But, you know, you could also get it from your local bookseller. They can order it. Um, that You can get it from Barnes & Noble. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is <laughs> quite literally available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> uh, and that's, that includes Canada, too. So if you're if I can't ship signed books to Canada because it just costs me too much money. But uh, Amazon.ca has it and bookstores in Canada will also have it. It's good to know. Yeah, we have a good, uh, a good Canadian contingent that listens to the show. So uh, that's that's good intel for them. Um, so looking at this book, what, what really drew your inspiration to, to put pen, pen to paper on this? Well, unlike hunting, which I've been doing for about 20 years, uh, I've been gathering shellfish and seafood and fishing since I could walk probably before that. And so it's, it's a thing that has been, you know, very, very close to my heart. And this is, this is a book that is the most autobiographical of any that, that I've written. So you'll, and you'll see that in the book, you'll see pictures of me as a little kid shucking clams and, and catching fish and doing all that sort of thing. And it, it's something that, um, unlike hunting, there is a family tradition mm-hmm. for us and, and a multi-generational family tradition. My, my mom is from, she's from Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is right next to Gloucester. And so we come by fish fishing, honestly. And I grew up, you know, I didn't grow up down the shore in New Jersey, but I grew up within easy distance of, of the shore. And so I grew up fishing on party boats and, and in the ocean. So it's funny that, um, you know, uh, I didn't catch my first bluegill until my 20s, which freaks people out. Oh, because yeah. If, you, if, you're, if, you're from the, if you're from inland anywhere, um, Brim and, and Sunnies and those kinds of fish are the first thing that most people catch. But the first thing that, that I can remember catching and that, I, that we can find pictures of me catching is a flounder. So <laughs> it's just, it's kind of a little different world. And I've, I did, I had to come to freshwater fishing later in life, uh, when I moved inland. Huh? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, normally you, you would find those fishing. That would be like the first thing they would catch and like flounder would be much further down the list, but I guess it does depend on where you're at. Cause then if you talk to somebody from coastal Florida, like, you know, catching snapper, things like that are going to be the first things. So. Uh, as you know, you talked about as a child growing up and fishing on the bay, um, is it, and then going out and maybe not catching your first bluegill until you're 20. So in your mind, was there like that experience of doing something new as an adult, a closer relationship to inland fishing and hunting? Or do you think of inland fishing as just an extension of your kind of longer background in sea fishing? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not a hell of a lot different. It's not a hell of a lot different fishing in a, in a, a lake or a, or pond or a river than it is on the ocean. Um, so I don't think that, I don't think there was any ever, the only thing that, that was a learning experience for me freshwater fishing was how small the fish were in comparison mm, um, yeah. uh, and how small the gear is. So the, the, the very light tackle and very light gear. And yeah, I got to enjoy it quite a bit. Um, and, you know, I've, I've fished pretty much almost every state, freshwater and salt. I mean, obviously the states that don't have salt water, I haven't, but um, hunting really did feel like a difference um, because hunting is very different. You know, you, you, there's no catch and release with a shotgun and there's no, you know, it's, it's, you broke it, you bought it. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of, and, and plus the, there's the very real fact that everything we hunt is warm and, you know, fish like it or not are, are not, they're just, they're even warm water fish are not a hundred degrees inside. And so there's a, there's a kinship that you feel with mammals and even birds to some extent that you just don't feel with, with fish. And it's, it's, I think it's pretty hardwired within us. I mean, I think you can intellectually grasp the fact that there is such a thing as fish intelligence and some fish are smarter than others and some fish live for quite a long time. And, Mm -hmm. and the, and there's more recent research that shows that fish like land animals and birds uh, have personalities so, 
you know, it's not like they don't. It's just that it is a is an alien intelligence compared to us, which is why I think most people are fascinated by things like octopus, which are which are demonstrably as, as, as smart as dogs, uh, and yet are so alien that that people are are just you know freaked out by them quite a bit. <laughs> I could see that too, and you know the relation of us being mammals and kind of having a lot of similar characteristics to. Uh, to other animals and mammals, it, it, I could see that point uh, pretty strongly. And then looking at the fish and being like, same, same, but different, I guess, in a lot of chords. Yeah, but. I mean, there's even people who are like, oh, you know, fish don't feel pain, which is horseshit. Yeah. I mean, it's of course they feel pain. It's just, that's it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's that persists to this day. And y- I don't think you could ever... Well, I mean, people did used to argue that that animals didn't feel pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a that was a a, a thought in so called science, you know, a hundred years ago. And so that's we put paid to that. And you know, <laughs> it doesn't make me want to fish less. The fact that I that I know that they're they're brighter than we think they are, and they actually feel pain. It just makes me want to fish a bit more responsibly. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's that's very true for me as well. Um, so outside of just kind of coming into fishing and, and coming into, I'll say, let me correct myself, growing up fishing on the coast and then coming into fishing later in life, like how has fishing continued to play in sort of your journey, uh, in food? I think it's the diversity. Um, there are more than 10,000 species of fish and seafood that are marketable mm-hmm. in North America. Uh, and there are way more species that are that are not that never find the market at all. So it's it's a life's work, really. I mean, in research for doing hook, line, and supper, I kind of tallied up all of the different species of fish and seafood that I have, you know, caught, cooked, and eaten, or even just bought and eaten. And it, it's only about five hundred. And wow. you know, I've been <laughs> if you name it, I've pretty much eaten it. And and for me to only have about 500, I talked to another guy, a guy named Tommy Gomes. He's a, he's a fishmonger in San Diego, and he's older than I am. And he's, he's been doing this kind of the same thing with his life, and, and he's less than 1,000. So it's, it's an immense thing, fish and seafood, that no one person can fully understand. It's a, it's a little bit like, like if you live in the West, and you live in Colorado now, and I live in California, it's a little bit like, trying to understand the national forest you simply can't Mm -hmm. it's just too big for a human being to understand it you can you can do quite a bit of work to understand a piece of that forest and you can understand general principles about moving through that forest but you don't really know it you can know a piece and it's this fish and seafood is the same way and it's endlessly fascinating because i have been actively fishing and eating and cooking and learning about fish and seafood for probably 50, 50 years. And I am, am I farther along than when I was? Sure I am, but I could live for another hundred years and still not get to the end of it because for every instance where there's a thing like a fact, there's an exception to that fact somewhere in the fish and seafood world. And which is what made Hook, Line, and Supper fairly difficult to write, which is also why it's the fifth book that I've written and not the first. Because what it, I sat down to write it in 2011, really, right after my first book came out. And I realized very quickly that I didn't have the sufficient skill and sufficient, you know, life experience to be able to write the kind of book that I wanted to write, which is to say, I didn't know much about cobia. I didn't know much about lane snapper. I didn't know much about burbot. I didn't know much about, you know, cutthroat trout. And you on and on and on in 2011. So I basically, and this is, this, I know you guys are all going to feel very sorry for me. I had to spend a decade <laughs> fishing all over the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> oh, poor Hank. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, getting myself you know, purposely putting myself in, in new situations where um, I was not the expert so that I could learn. And, and Hook, Line, and Supper is kind of the the culmination of all of that. Yeah. It's, 
I mean, it's it, it's awesome. I I think and and it true just looking just looking at it and through it and kind of about it, it the uh, as you said, it's it's much more than a cookbook. Which you know, getting into technique and story and and thinking about all that is. I definitely a person can put down recipes on paper, but to sort of tell the story and build that connection with the food and the experience. And and I think that's a constant throughout all of your books that I've seen and really enjoy. But, uh, I think this one really does it very, very well. Appreciate that. Thank you. And, uh, so as we start looking more and I want to talk a little bit about recipes in a minute, but what, what sort of techniques, uh, can people expect to find inside that that maybe they wouldn't normally see or know well kind of all of them i mean they're all going to be there so the only thing that i don't have an extensive <laughs> chapter on is is simple baked fish because i find that impossibly boring mm-hmm. um but w- i basically sat down and thought about all of the different ways that people prepare fish you know both through cooking and, and with raw fish and I didn't, the only one I kind of purposely gave short shrift to was, you know, your standard baking. Because in many cases, in a great many cases, um, it is the it is the worst of all worlds. So, I mean, it does, um, it will get you there for sure. But in many cases, if you bake something, it is better grilled or it's better mm-hmm. barbecued or it's better fried or it's better whatever, whatever. So, so I kept going to a frying section. And the, the frying section is quite big because... I'll put it this way. If you don't like fried fish, you've never had good fried fish because good fried fish is a, is one of the great glories of humankind. Um, do, you, do you think that that's probably one of the most common way people prepare fish? Yes, yes. And that's also why not everybody buys fish cookbooks because they, they look at a fish cookbook and be like, oh, man, that's all I do is fry fish anyway. I know how to do that. <laughs> well, do you? Do you? Do you really do? There's definitely some and, technique and, and, to it. Yeah, I mean, some people listening to this were like, "Absolutely, I do," <laughs> and they're and they're going to be right. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there who don't know things like your oil has to be very, very hot mm-hmm. with fish. You know, it's three fifty, three sixty, three seventy. People, a lot of people don't know that you have to have an an oil that is quite a bit sturdier than that temperature. So you're talking oils with smoke point around four hundred, if if you can at all do it. And they also, you also have to know that you can, you can absolutely fry fish in lard, which has a, a smoke point of 350. So you're mm-hmm. frying at its smoke point. But that's tricky. You have to balance things. Um, another, another trick for, you know, that some people know and some people don't is if you're going to um, bread fish, so not, not like a beer batter where it's just like pancake batter, but if you're breading fish, sort of, you know, your typical flour, egg, and breadcrumbs or something like that you you want to really get it on the fish and press it in and then you want to sit it in the refrigerator for at least an hour up to overnight because what that does is that sets that crust on that fish so that it doesn't fall off the second you bite the fish so everybody here has had fish and chips at some crappy restaurant where you bite, take one bite of your piece of fish and chips and the, all the bread all, all that batter and all that bread and just comes right off mm-hmm. and yep. that's because that's why and, you know, I go through other countries' styles of, of frying, like tempura, and there's a bunch of Chinese styles, and there's a very particular Mexican technique called chicharron that, um, that is amazing. <laughs> and so uh, rather than turn my nose up at, like, oh, fried fish, that's only things that red next to. Well, yeah, because it's good. <laughs> and, uh, but I also looked at, I basically kind of, like, all right, I'm double down on it, and we're going to give you all of the fried fish recipes. Yep. But, you know, of course, there's more to it than that. There's there's stews, and there's how to build a fish stew. Um, basically, every section of this book is intended to make you a better fish and seafood cook, and the recipes are really there as markers, kind of a dry run for you to employ that technique that I'm, I'm helping you to learn. And so, yes, there are specific recipes for X and Y, but those recipes are really markers for the greater techniques that that chapter teaches. And that lets you really be free. It, it lets you 
catch whatever fish you want because here's the dirty little secret. With very few exceptions, every species of fish or seafood that you particular that you can find or catch or buy will work in anybody else's recipe. So we tested these recipes over and over again. And so we found that a walleye recipe would work fine with flounder. It worked fine with, you know, red snapper. It worked fine with smallmouth bass. It worked fine with Pacific rockfish. And then we found that, you know what? It was, it was pretty good with amberjack too. And it was also pretty good with tuna. And you know what? It was also pretty good with trout. And you know what? It was really good with shrimp and so on and so forth. So, if you, if anybody out there has my previous book, uh, Pheasant Quail Cottontail, we set up a system of icons on the right-hand side of every recipe that would show you that, yes, it's a pheasant recipe, but you could use all of these other kinds of animals in that same recipe, and it's going to work great. We couldn't do that with, with Hook, Line, and Supper because every freaking recipe would have every icon. <laughs> and the, so it got to the point where... If I don't tell you in the head notes of that recipe not to use X or Y fish, one good example was, you know, and even this, like I hate, I hate salmon fish and chips. I think it's gross, Mm -hmm. but you can buy it in lots of restaurants in Seattle and some people love it. So even though I personally dislike fried mackerel or fried, uh, fried salmon, a lot of people do it. Mm -hmm. And so even in those cases, like you do you, man. Yeah, that was one aspect I, uh, that I really. I did want to say, Kate. Kate yeah, I really yeah. appreciated. You, you go go ahead with it, Casey, because we're going to say the same thing. <laughs> you talk about freestyling and kind of going through just an ingredient list and things that you can pair fish with, and talking about it at a much higher level than just a standard cookbook, which I thought was very smart, and I think points at exactly what you're talking about is there's so much variety and, and more than we could ever touch on. So talking about knowing the techniques, being comfortable with a few of the ingredients, uh, personally as like growing up in inland and not having any familiarity with saltwater fish. Um, I don't know if you have any like words of encouragement for those that, that live inland or maybe vice versa people that, uh, like Justin, grew up on the coast and all of a sudden they're in the middle of the country and, and maybe surrounded by species they're not familiar with of, like you said, you can play with this a lot and maybe what that looks like getting rid of the fear and, and familiarizing yourself with techniques and ingredients more than worrying about what species you're cooking. Yeah. I mean, I think one truism for freshwater anglers is that with the exception of trout, and there are a couple of minor other exceptions. Virtually every freshwater fish is is lean and white. So there are not a lot of fatty fish inland. You know, trout's the exception. And, you know, they're friends, you know, salmon and mm-hmm. um, you know, the they're the the caveat to that is uh, all the white fish, so ciscos and mountain whitefish and, and that sort of thing. Technically, they're trout too. So, I mean, when I say trout, I kind of mean everything that's in the trout family. And, and I don't know if you knew this, but whitefish are also trout. Um, I did not. You know, they're not, yeah, the same family, different different genus, but same family. Um, so, all of those fish, they're they're going to be your fattiest fish. There there are. And so, if you're a freshwater angler, the really the only parameters that you're dealing with are you're dealing with size, you're dealing with firmness. You know, on one end, you have something like uh, yellow perch, which is just about the firmest fish I can think of that that actually flakes as opposed to something like swordfish um, versus bowfin, which if you don't treat bowfin correctly, you're dealing with wallpaper paste. So you, you have firmness is a big issue for freshwater anglers. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really going to be a big limiting factor is you'll have to know your your the firmness of your species and and it changes with the weather i mean um i guarantee you most freshwater anglers listening to this know that if you catch let's say crappies in a farm pond in march they're amazing but if you catch the same crappies in august 
they're going to be like wallpaper paste. Ah, so mushy. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Ugh. Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I learned that the hard way. And um, so my word of advice for if you find yourself with some mushy fish, um, fish cakes cure a multitude of ills. Learn fish cake recipes. There's an entire chapter on fish cake recipes in the book. Really kind of for that reason. Because <laughs> when in doubt, if there is a fish that is challenging, it's 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 fatty, it's mushy, it's it's oily, and you're like, eh, I don't know, but I caught it and I kind of don't want to throw it in the garbage. Um, make fish cakes. Fish cakes will cure everything. I do love fish cakes. I mean, cakes. those are really the your, your biggest issues. I mean, because you're always going to deal with... With yeah, I mean, even most of the trout that you catch in freshwater will cook up white, mm-hmm. um, but you're you're not really dealing with the diversity that you deal with in the saltwater. It's such a limited it's a limited pool in comparison, and I think so. Uh, for me, growing up, it was like it, it was the opposite of you. Like I grew up, uh, you know, freshwater fishing inland, like in Oklahoma, and then moving to you know, San Diego first and then moving over to Florida after that is just like my, my mind of like, look at all this tackle, like all these species, tides, currents, like, holy smokes, just to wrap my head around the diversity of species. And I think, you know, even I was in Key West for five years and I think just towards like the tail end of it, you know, I was like, okay, I'm starting to get a a footing for, for catching fish and going out and knowing where to go to target and, you know, understanding. And then even in the kitchen of being like, all right, today we caught this fish, this fish, and this fish, like, let's taste them. Let's see which one we like better. Let's see, you know, kind of play around with it and, and see where it lies. But for those first year or two in each place, it was just like, I was kind of like wide eyed, like, okay, well, what do I do now? <laughs> Well, you did happen to live in two of the most diverse fisheries in the country, too. So that's yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's totally out of the frying pan into the fire. I mean, I, I'm still amazed at the diversity of the Keys. Oh, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. And I mean, you know, you, you know, when you live down there, you know that a hogfish is not a lane snapper. Mm-mm. And you, they can both be in the same recipe. And this is kind of the point I'm trying to make. It's like, so, so a hogfish is very, very firm and a lane snapper is it's fine. Um, the lane snapper is kind of a blank slate mm-hmm. where a hogfish be, by, by virtue of its texture, much like grouper gets kind of pushed to the, the forefront because while their flavors are not enormously different, their textures are, and people use that as a marker for flavor. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that quite a bit with fish and seafood is there's a lot of very subtle flavor differences between fishes that are... Um, they, can, they, they can be lost. I mean, they can be easily lost by people who are not looking for them. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, and yeah. And the, we, we talked, you know, we had a podcast episode on it and you, you had a podcast episode as well. I think it's for you season three, episode two, where you, you talk with uh, Scott and then Tom Dixon and kind of talk about this whole trash fish and you get into oh, those yeah. regional favorites and you know, I, I'm so very interested and I have been for so long of like, how did we arrive to the fact that people really like hogfish over, you know, other fish that I personally think, you know, has better flavor. And it, I think you kind of hit the hell on, hit the head on the nail and yeah, nail on the head. <laughs> completely that. missed that one. <laughs> anyway, you, you hit it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I that. mean, I think I, I think, unfortunately, especially with the concept of rough fish, racism actually factors mm-hmm. into it, which is sort of unfortunate but true. And a, and really, I, I'm going to say it's more than that. It's not really quite that. It's more classism, because it wasn't so much the color of your skin that determined it. It was it was what did the very rich people in the 1800s fish for, and so the rich people in the 1800s would fish for X or Y fish. And then the poor people would fish for those rough fish. And the and fashion really had quite a bit to do with it rather than straight up flavor. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. Tarpon, like the world's largest herring. Um, and, and a Ugh. fish that I have not actually cooked. That's I've not actually cooked a tarpon. I think there's... I've only seen them cooked was, in like Central America. I've seen... Uh, where is it? I think that you can keep them. Is it Louisiana? 
yeah, I'm sure you can keep them a lot of places, but well, I mean, in in the a, states, yeah, I've seen them cooked. Never, I don't think it's it's a mega tar- it's a mega herring, basically. Yeah, tarpon. It's so such a cool fish, though. Like aside from it, and just like I I spent like last year learning a lot about them and trying to catch them on the fly pretty regularly, uh, not very successfully. <laughs> I will say that, but um, such a neat fish, but. Yeah, I mean they're they're really interesting. I mean, big giant scales and mm-hmm. um but yeah, I it's it's so interesting to see how things are shaped and and targeted for eating and you thought now Florida is looking at revisiting uh Goliath grouper, which, you know, Oh yeah. those were yep. almost eaten out of existence essentially. And then, they're good. I mean, cuz we can keep their equivalent in the Pacific kind of sorta. Um so it's, I might even be the same fish. If it's not the same fish, it's damn well close. It's, it's the, what we call a black sea bass, okay, which is a Goliath grouper. And I mean, again, it might be, uh, it might be a different species, but it sure damn well looks the same and they get the same size. And so everything I know from Mexico, cause it's Mexico is where you can keep them, um, is that the real true Goliaths, you don't want you know you you want no part of those fish because they're just gross. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean the flakes are are sometimes two fingers thick and and just it's just just a nightmare. I, it, However, a forty pounder yeah or a fifty pounder is a whole another story. A four hundred pounder you like you catch it take a picture and, and cut the line. And I I think that's it. And uh, I think people that have been down there and fished for them and caught them and when you start to wrap your head around it from like a culinary standpoint yeah. Those bigger fish, plus then you get into parasites and all the other things that turn people away from eating the larger fish just because they've been around longer and, you know, Mm -hmm. they're more susceptible. Like black drum. Yeah, yeah, same thing. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, almost fishing out some of the different species. I'm curious with your long history of fishing on the coast, maybe how regulations in different areas are from year to year, uh, species fluctuations, whether it's temperature change or overfishing, and like how that's impacted you as an angler and what you're targeting as cooking. I know in the book you mentioned really planning out some of your fishing trips in advance. Um, from year to year, it seems like ocean temps and stuff can fluctuate and really, you know, like throw a, a curveball into people's plan. So anything along those lines? Well, that's a big bucket of questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let me be clear. You're not talking about fisheries management, are you? You're talking about like things that happen on the ground or yeah i think I guess he's, I'm curious. he's more mentioning or in- i think i'm curious about how as an angler and cook <laughs> you relate to that whether it is fishery management or water temperatures changing 
like how you tiptoe around those issues or if you're trying to stay ahead of the curve and does that make more sense? Yeah. I mean, I think I have, I address this to some extent for consumers in the book, uh, in that American fisheries are among the most heavily regulated in the world. Mm -hmm. And that is not to say that they're perfect, but it is very safe to say that if you are a recreational angler and you are following the law, you are not hurting a species. So the the general, the, the short cliff notes, 30,000 foot view of fish sustainability is follow the law when you catch it yourself or buy American. And... And because of that, because of our, our fisheries are quite heavily regulated. And again, yeah, I mean, there ha- I can name a number of mistakes as long as my arm, but it's not Southeast Asia. It's not, uh, it's not Canada who've had way worse record uh, with their fisheries than we have. It's not, you know, South America or, or, or most of Europe. I mean, the Spanish are notorious as are the Chinese and the Japanese in terms of just horrific overfishing. So, from an angler standpoint, I mean, yeah, sure. There's some things that, that irk me. Like a great example is codfish in New England. So the commercial commercial fishery ruined the cod fishery. Uh, we got too good at catching codfish, and we just caught too many of them. And that's a long, sorted story that has a lot of detail to it. But the, the short version of it is... There were too many people with too much too, with, with gear that was too good, and they overfished them. So that fishery has been dead for quite some time. However, the fish aren't dead. The fish are coming back, and they're coming back uh, pretty strong in the Gulf of Maine to the point where the and I get it. I understand why they're doing it because they need lots of cod to make more lots of cod. So I get I understand intellectually why, but as an angler. It sure is annoying to catch 10 codfish of 7 to 25 pounds while you're trying to catch 2-pound haddock that you have to throw back. Oh, man, yeah. So it's it's – I get it because I have – I used to be a newspaper reporter and I covered fisheries management. So I understand the, why things happen. Um, sometimes things happen for political reasons. Sometimes things happen for scientific reasons. And, but there always is some sort of reason why things are happening. And, um, <laughs> it's just still as a guy with a hook and line in my hand, I'm like, oh, oh BJ Codfish. I mean, yeah, because <laughs> literally it'd be like your rod would just bend over double and be like, oh God damn it, it's a cod, you know, <laughs> where, where when I was a kid, you'd be like, this is amazing. <laughs> Oh, yes. We went through that. Uh, we were out deep drop fishing uh, off Key West, and uh, I found it very fascinating. That So the guy I was out there with, he'd been deep drop fishing for several years, and like he's like, you can tell almost what type of fish it is by the way the rod moves. And, you know, for those that don't know, like deep drop, like you're dropping, you're dropping heavy weights and, and line and bait down like 800 plus feet. So it's, it, it takes a while You're using an electric reel a lot of times to bring it back up. So there's a lot of time where you just watch the rod move and his experience, like, yeah, he'd be like, Oh, that's a, you know, that's a golden tile or that's a rosy or like he just name mm-hmm. off different ones. It's snowy. Yeah. Yep. Base, it's Warsaw. Oh uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. But we caught very much the same. We were at the very end of the season, um, for, uh, I think golden tile was closed and blue tile was open or some vice versa. And it's like, they're like, if we catch more than one, like we're, you know, we're, we're in a spot where they are and like, it's not fair for us to keep doing it. But it was like, cause you'd wait, you'd wait like 10 minutes and you're like, Oh, all right, now it's back up. And you're like, Oh, that's not the fish we wanted. <laughs> yup. Yup. Oh my God. I had, I was, again, I was in the Gulf too. And I was deep dropping for, we were deep dropping for grouper uh, at the end of a tuna trip, and we were using these janky one-to-one reels from, like, 1974, and it was just like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. And so, I mean, we weren't 800 feet, but we were we were three, mm-hmm. and and so I get hit, and like, oh, it's an amberjack, and this amberjack season would not open. Oh, no. So I don't know if you've ever tried to pull a 
25, 30 pound amberjack up through 300 feet of water um, with a bad reel. But I can assure you it's not fun. No, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've pulled amberjack through you know, out on the, the back country or a little further out with a good reel and it's still, it's exhausting. I mean, it's, if, if you've never, if, if, if you're listening to this and you've never hooked into something like an amberjack, if you live inland and you want to really feel it, take a rod and reel with a really good, I don't know, maybe a hundred pound mono on it. You'll have to go find my hundred pound mono if you're in like Montana and, and, and then put a treble hook on it and cast it into a herd of horses <laughs> and set the hook and then try to bring that horse yep. in. That's basically what it is. <laughs> we, uh, we, we released a film here back, uh, I think it was last month, the month before an adventures for food. And we did a Florida keys, like backcountry trip, uh, with my buddy Craig who guides down there. And one of the, the, one of the main scenes, like halfway through the film is, a. Uh, my friend Will hooks into an amberjack and the scene is very small in the film, but like what it actually took us to film it was like, it was a good 20, 30 minute run. And, uh, just like, Holy smokes. They're amazing fish. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, so I kind of want to circle around to some of the recipes in the book and, and give a little preview. Uh, we're kind of winding down on time, so I don't want to, uh, don't want to stray far from that, but uh, looking at some of the recipes, what do you think is one of the most unique recipes in your book? Unique? Yeah. Uh, like- probably the fish skin chicharrones. So um, in Mexico, chicharron means two different things. So this is one case where the English language is better than the Spanish language. It's usually the opposite uh, in terms of being able to, to describe things. Mm-hmm. But their word chicharron both means pork rinds and cracklins. So, um, I have a recipe for chicharron de pescado, which is more like, it, it's more like cracklins for, with fish where you just hard fry them and it's really good. Works great with gar, by the way. Ooh, that's good. Um, but this one is pork rinds, but only with fish skin. So I did not invent the recipe. Uh, a friend of mine named Billy No, he's a sushi chef here in Sacramento, um, to my knowledge, he either invented or he got it from somebody uh, in Southeast Asia. But basically, you do the exact same thing with fish skin that you do with pork skin. Okay. And I've done this with many, many, many species. And it, and it works with with pretty much anything that, that has a sturdy skin. So not like mackerel or anything or trout. Um and tr- trout and salmon skin, incidentally, won't do this. It's, there's too much fat in it. Um, they get crispy and delicious, but they don't puff. So what we're talking about is like pork rinds that are puffed. So it's a bit chefy, but it works, and it's really, really cool. Um, and you can store the dried skins in the freezer um, pretty much until the second coming. Um, snacks So forever. you basically do this. <laughs> yeah, snacks forever. So you've got a fish. Uh, let's take – I did this with a walleye, actually, not too long ago. So you take a walleye and you you scale the walleye. You have, you have to use scaled skin. Um, so you scale the walleye and then you fillet it as you would. And then you take the skin off as you would. And then you boil it for like 30 seconds. And you pull the skin out and then you take a butter knife and you carefully scrape all of the meat and, and fat from the underside of the skin off. And then you stick it on a dehydrator tray. Now I use those, those um, dehydrator mats. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the things that you make like fruit leather out of, because like, if you use the grade, it's not going to work. Um, but if you use these dehydrator mats, which are kind of nonstick anyway, and you dehydrate that skin at, you know, hundred some odd degrees, I mean, not too hot, not too cold. It's not, the, the, the temperature is not terribly important and you dehydrate it until it looks like a piece of glass. Um, Side note, you can do this with kelp, too. Like, dried kelp will also puff up. Huh, I did not so know that. Cool. It will. That's cool to know, too. Uh, not, quite as, not quite as pretty as, as fish or pork skin, but it will. So once these skins are dry, you, you break them, like a, you break a piece of stained glass, and you throw the pieces into 360-degree oil. And instantaneously, they go, and puff up. And so you... You fold, fish them out with a spider skimmer and hit them with salt or lawries or whatever the hell you want to put on it and and eat them. And they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly crunchy. They're light as air. And they have the same color pattern that the fish used to have. 
It's the coolest thing ever. That's so cool. <laughs> it's super cool. <laughs> That's really neat. And uh, you mentioned walleye. So for those listening, fresh, fresh or saltwater, I, I would give it a go, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just uh, freshwater fish that work well with it are walleye, um, smallmouth bass, uh, rock bass, um, catfish not so much. You know, it needs to be, uh, I mean, carp skin would work. Um, but you know, scaling a carp is not easy. So I'm not sure I would do that. Um, you know, imagine a fish, a pretty decent size fish that you can scale. That's, that's your general thing. Now, sturgeon are, are some of the best in the world. Uh, I first did this with sturgeon, um, and shark, little sharks, shark skin works really, really well too. Yeah, you do have to boil them a little bit longer, mm-hmm. but like the like a regular bass-like fish, you're really only boiling it for like 30 seconds. But the tougher the skin, the longer the boil. So if you've got something like, um, you know, swordfish or or shark or tuna or sturgeon, you might you might have to to boil it more than 30 seconds. But it's not that long. It's not like pork. Like if you're making actual pork rinds, you typically boil that skin for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's cool. That's a cool technique. It's, it's, yeah, that'd be the weirdest one. Like, I'm, <laughs> I mean, it all gets gets easier from that. I mean, I another thing I I have um uh, I have an entire section on how to navigate a fish head, um, and this is this is primarily for saltwater anglers because there are very few freshwater fish that have a, a head big enough to you know to to care about um you know and I'm talking about cheeks and I'm talking about where where all the good meat is. Mm-hmm on a big old fish head Mm -hmm. so i'm thinking like amberjack what we just talked about a big grouper head um grouper cheeks big old lingcod lingcod head you know yeah the cheat all of those things and they're it it, little tips like the things that i love to talk about are if you're going to make a fish soup or a fish stew the worst fish to use is the filet because it's going to be the driest, it's and it's going to have the weirdest texture. It's just going to be. It can get chalky if you cook it, overcook it. Whereas every other bit of meat on that fish, whether it was scraped off the bone, or the all the little pockets of meat around the pectoral fins and the uh, and the the uh, oh, what's it, pectoral fins and the uh, not dorsal caudal fins, and the caudal fins, the bottom fins. Mm-hmm. All the collars, all the cheeks, and all the money, and all the all the all the uh, meat at the back of the head, and like all of those other bits of stuff that you would normally throw out, when that's in a in a fish stew or a fish soup, it completely changes the game. It it is the equivalent of using oxtail versus sirloin. Okay. If you can if you can grasp that difference, it's the same difference. Yeah. I can't. Or yeah. you know, on a deer, a hind leg roast versus a neck. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're pulling out all those fats and flavors and little stored delicious tidbits in there too. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's the texture. I mean, because what we're really talking about with fish and seafood way more than land and land meats and birds is our textural differences. Which is, which is interesting when you get into it because you look at like a lot of the traditional like stocks, like the very, very old fish stocks, like they're not cooked a super long time. Mm-hmm. Never. I mean, because fish are so high in collagen. I mean, I can make a fish stock in 40 minutes that will set up to be a firm jello in the fridge. Hmm. Seems more productive. <laughs> It is. I mean, but, you know, there is very little about fish and seafood that requires time, except for curing and smoking. Ooh, it's a perfect segue. Uh, I did have that on my notes about your salt, smoke, and time <laughs> section. That's <laughs> yeah, my favorite section. Is it? That, that answers my other it question. <laughs> it is. It's my favorite section because the world eats fish, and the world realizes that fish start to stink awful fast oh yeah so humans have developed incredibly ingenious ways of of preserving the bounty of fresh and salt water forever and so i got a great i had a great time researching all of the different ways that that different sets of humans preserve their fish and seafood and i put my favorite ones in the book that's awesome 
I'm excited. Yeah, that section, great section to to cook through. I, I've been on a big curing and aging and all those things, smoking, salting. So, yes. Um, well, I think that the clock is ticking down, unfortunately. So this is kind of uh, we we reserved the last part of the section, sort of a last thoughts, last ideas, uh, any alibis or misfires that you may have uh and uh i'll give you give you the floor first and then we'll we'll take around so uh anything for us or the the listeners i think you have to not be scared to fail i think the only way that i've gotten to be as skilled a cook as i've been over the last decades is by thinking something through i'm not saying like just just try that i'm saying like if you've got something that you that you think might work sit down pop open a beer maybe have a uh, and this is another piece have a notebook Mm -hmm. i've had i have a series of notebooks that i've been keeping for many 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 decades and and so they're all had they're all my guns safe in case the house burns down um good place but but keep it keep a notebook that has i mean you don't have to i'm not saying journal um but i mean if you want go for it but but I keep a, I will sit down when I'm thinking about something. I'll open my notebook and I'll brainstorm on paper, you know, drink a beer or whatever and, and think, okay, how is this going to work? And think it through and, and really think it through. Because if you can do that, there are many cases where you can try something new and it'll work pretty well the first time, but you'll also have a record of it. And you'll have a record if it failed, if it, you'll have a record of what you did so you can improve it. And so that's how you become a better cook is, is not by winging it. Your, your gut's great, but you can't remember everything that you did. Mm-mm. I mean, this is a stage that most cooks go through. I went through it in my teens and early 20s. But, but it's just a question. It's like, you know, all the stages of 100 that you talk about where, you know, you want to get skills and then you want to get limits and then you don't care and then you want to pass it on. So it's, it's very similar with cooking where don't be scared to do new things and but don't do it willy-nilly that would be my thought it's it's a solid thought i like it for sure all right casey uh you got a last thought alibi anything if not it's okay i wanted to sneak in one last question and it's funny because hank's last comment was kind of in line with that so as hank as someone that makes so many different recipes how often do you find yourself going back to something that's a favorite or are you just more driven by wanting to try something new it's more the latter than the former because there's so much of this world to explore however um there are dishes that i come back to over and over and over again um and usually it's a dish that i do on like a tuesday night when i'm I don't have a lot of, you know, don't have a lot of time or don't have a lot of thought. Um, or it's a dish that represents a time of the year that I always do. So I think if I had to put a percentage to it, it would be 75% new and 25% tried and true. Good. Anything else, Casey? No, no, thank you. That's a, uh, yeah, personally, I always, that's like, a, I think back sometimes when I remember a recipe where I made it once, I was like, man, that was great. And it's been three years since I have had it, but the lure of something new is pretty enticing. Definitely. So, well, Hank, I, I really appreciate you coming on today and uh, carving out some time to chat with us. And I, I'm excited to work my way through through your book. And uh, as always, we've had some great conversations. We start talking about food and then we go on to all these other great areas that we all soon realize definitely circle around food. So uh, thanks once again for coming on. Yeah, anytime. I'm always happy to talk with you guys. Sweet. And uh, for everyone else out there, uh, be sure to go connect with Hank. Oh, that's one thing, Hank. For those that don't know, what's a good way to connect with you? Well, the core of what I do is my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And the easiest way to find that is to go to huntgathercook.com. Uh, I am the only Hank Shaw on the internet who is not an FBI agent. And that guy just retired. <laughs> so... I, he has cleared the field for me. So Google's always good. Uh, and then uh, the most 
probably the the in, the the social media that I do the most is Instagram, where I'm at Hunt Gather Cook. Uh, I do that quite a lot because it seems to be one of the most drama free um, platforms right now, and and that's why I quit Twitter. Twitter's kind of the engine of hate. Uh, and I also run a private Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook. So this group is uh, it's twenty four thousand people. And everything from like duly driving MAGA hat wearing people to Prius driving Earth Mothers. But we are all united in trying to help ourselves become better cooks with wild food. Mm-hmm. So that's Hunt Gather Cook on Facebook. It's a private group and you do have to answer the questions to get in. So let them know that you heard me on this podcast and I will let you in. Absolutely. I'm, I'm actually a member of that group. You and I have talked several times and uh, yeah. a, a wealth of knowledge on that page too. Uh, which is awesome because you can generally go there with a question. And uh, like you said, people will, will re- very respectfully uh, provide a lot of good intel. So, yeah, I've, you know, I've been making, been able to make it fairly drama free. I mean, we have our moments, mm-hmm. but you know, <laughs> I think every, unfortunately, every Facebook group does. <laughs> so, but uh, we'll, we'll include those links in the show notes uh, as, as well as uh, the links to, ways to purchase Hank's book and then to get on his website and uh, anything else that we discussed today that popped up uh, that has a link. We always try to include those. So check the show notes down in uh, just below where you're listening to the podcast and then uh, make sure you head over, check out uh, Hank's social media pages and his website. And then after you're done with that, make sure you're following Harvest in Nature because lots of fun and exciting things happening here. And uh, we want you to stay abreast to, to what we're doing as well. So, with that, whatever podcast platform, ooh, let me start that again. Whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please punch that five star button. Leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing wrong, or you know, tell us what we're doing right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.